You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We've all heard of World War I, the cataclysmic event that started with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The war that killed over 40 million people and that set the stage for the rest of the 20th century, which was a very depressing century, depending on which way you look at it. The Great Depression, the Cold War, the war in Vietnam, among other things. Oh yeah, and the war that World War I precipitated, World War II, the most deadly war of all time. But something happened in between all of this. It happened off to the side. It happened in the cut. I'm talking about one of the most isolated periods of unbridled violence against black Americans in United States history. I'm talking about the red summer of 1919. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. The year is 1917 and unmitigated chaos and destruction is rising out all across Europe. The entire continent was more or less pitted against itself, destroying itself from the inside out. Germany had declared war on Russia, which caused the French to mobilize, causing Germany to declare war against the French. Great Britain declared war against Germany too, and soon Austria-Hungary, Serbia, Montenegro, and Japan all got into the mix as well, resulting in over 30 nations declaring war against one another between 1914 and 1918. At the beginning of World War I, all sides were pitted against each other, resulting in two larger sides, the Allies and the Central Powers. But someone was missing from this equation for a long time, pretty much the bulk majority duration of the World War I. The United States. The United States did not want to go to war at all. This was majority public opinion. The people of the United States did not want to go to war. And the opinion of the 28th president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, who I despise for many different reasons, but we'll say that for another day. Woodrow Wilson did not want to go to war. He maintained um, an on-the-fence international stability approach. Y'all do what y'all got to do over there, and we'll do what we got to do over here. But the Germans wanted other things. Germany launched a plan to isolate Great Britain and vowed to launch attacks on ships that would dare enter the war zone. And there just so happened to be United States ships that entered into this zone, which the Germans attacked and sank. This prompted Woodrow Wilson to ask Congress for permission to enter the war to end all wars, as he so optimistically stated. You silly, silly man. With the entry of the United States into World War I came the enlistment service with the Selective Service Act of 1917, where men between 21 and 30 were required to enlist in the armed forces. After it was all said and done, over 380,000 black men had enlisted to fight in World War I. About 200,000 of these men were actually sent to Europe, but the rest were assigned to labor duty and had to work menial jobs. 
but there were many successful black soldier stories to come out of World War I, including the story of the Harlem Hellfighters, a regiment that fought on the front lines in Europe and became one of the most celebrated and decorated regiments of all time. But I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. This isn't a World War I episode. So let's fast forward past World War I. Today's episode topic was voted on by my patrons over at Patreon. If you want to support me, the show, or what I do, consider going over to patreon.com forward slash blackout. You can find it linked in the show notes below. Let's get back to the show. Nineteen nineteen. The war was over now, and it was time to deal with the aftermath of the turmoil and the tensions about to boil over back home in the States. It was time to come home. It was time for everyone to come home. Black American servicemen had traveled overseas to put their lives on the line for the United States. I talked about this before in a previous podcast episode, but many black servicemen enlisted and were eager to go and fight to prove that they belonged here. You could kind of compare this to the black men fighting in the Civil War some 60 years prior. There were some similarities, though. Uh, Black men were allowed to fight in the Civil War because without them, the Union were not going to win. And black men were allowed to fight in World War I because without them, the army, uh, the armed forces might not have had enough bulk or enough help, you know, on the outsides and the nitty gritty. But this was different. Those men fighting in the Civil War were fighting for their freedom. They were fighting for the right to be recognized citizens. Now, these men fighting in World War I were fighting to prove that they deserved the freedom that they already had. It was about respect. It was about pride, but not everyone felt that way. Now, not every black person went to fight in the war. Um, women weren't really allowed to fight, white or black, and many black people stayed stateside. Like I said, Congress passed the Selective Service Act in May of 1917, and all in all, 4.7 million men and women served in some capacity in the American Armed Forces. Now, what did that mean for the folks back home? It meant J-O-B, job, with a large chunk of the white male population overseas doing imperialistic things. There were many job openings and opportunities to be sought after, especially up north. Now, this time also coincided with the great migration of African-Americans fleeing the hostile and deadly Jim Crow South to seek a better life and more opportunity in the West and up North. Now, the great migration is documented as happening between 1910 and 1970, with it happening in two particular waves, one before the Great Depression and one after the Great Depression. Now, these two waves are very long because you can see the migration of black people from the South after the Civil War. We're talking mid to late 1800s all the way up to the 1970s because there was always a reason for black people to leave the South, you know, we're, we're talking lack of resources, lack of opportunity, lack of money and racism. Can't forget the racism. 
The Great Migration also coincided with the slowing of European emigration to the United States because of, you know, that war that was going on. This left a massive shortage in industrial jobs and jobs that required unskilled labor. African Americans were able to step in and fill these voids. African American newspapers and word of mouth spread like wildfire throughout the South. The word said that there were better living conditions and better wages up north. It was an easy decision for many African Americans to make the journey out of the South. I can actually trace my lineage back to the Great Migration. I can trace my family back to Arkansas, Mississippi, and North Carolina, where I actually live now, which is kind of weird. But my family migrated up to Chicago, Illinois, and up to Cleveland, Ohio, where I was actually born. By the summer of 1919, well over 500,000 African Americans had moved to and settled in northern cities. And they were not welcomed by northern white folk and immigrants, which that part doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I digress. Black people taking up a lot of the jobs in the spaces caused for massive tensions when it was time for the soldiers to return home from overseas. White soldiers were furious, to say the least, by seeing their vacated jobs taken by African-Americans. And not only were black people taking the vacated jobs during the war, but they were also taking vacated jobs during strikes by white workers who were demanding better wages. But the employers were like, why should I give in to your wage demands when this black gentleman over here will do the work for damn near free? On top of all of this, Get this, the Russian Revolution had just ended over in Russia in 1917, and word was spreading that some folks thought that some black workers were spies or anarchists for the Russian government. Very weird. I know. I, I just have to tell you that. I saw it, so you got to see it, too. On top of all that, many white people feared that black people would be returning from war with a sense of pride, new knowledge, experience living overseas, and an unwillingness to resubmit to their meager place in American society. Many black societal and civil rights leaders encouraged black people to use this opportunity to assert their newfound place in society. They were just as good. A renowned civil rights activist and author, W.E.B. Du Bois, had one of the most transcendent and famous quotes in the aftermath of black soldiers returning home. It went something like this. We are returning from war. The crisis and tens of thousands of black men were drafted into a great struggle for bleeding France and what she means and has meant and will mean to us and humanity against the threat of German race arrogance. We fought gladly and to the last drop of blood for America and her highest ideals. We fought in far off hope for the dominant Southern oligarchy entrenched in Washington. We fought in bitter resignation for the America that represents and gloats in lynching, disenfranchisement, caste, brutality, and devilish insult. For this, in the hateful upturning and mixing of things, we were forced by vindictive fate to fight also. But today, we return. We return from the slavery of uniform, which the world's madness demanded us to don to the freedom of civil garb. We stand again to look America squarely in the face and call a spade a spade. We sing, this country of ours, despite all its better souls have done and dreamed, is yet a shameful land. He then went on to say, we return, we return from fighting. We return fighting. 
Make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States of America, or know the reason why. Yo, take a second and breathe. Think about what he said. Think about what he just said. There was so much packed. And that wasn't all, that wasn't his entire quote. There was so much more that he had to say. But basically, what W.E.B. Du Bois was saying is, there were so many things holding black people back at the time in the United States. Disenfranchisement, caste, police brutality, lynching. And we still went to go fight the United States war over in Europe. This wasn't our war. This wasn't the black man's war. This was the white man's war. He said, we return. We return from fighting their war, but we return fighting our own war back home. That magnificent quote is the true essence of the African-American experience during this time. They had gone overseas, risked their lives in deplorable wartime conditions, some of them not being lucky enough to make it back home in the first place. And if they were to make it back home, they had to fight yet another war, this time a war to prove they deserved equality. Also, something to notate was that this was a time where we actually saw a revival in the Ku Klux Klan, which can be directly linked back to President Woodrow Wilson showing a screening of The Birth of a Nation in the White House. If you aren't familiar with The Birth of a Nation, it's a major motion picture that literally depicts Ku Klux Klan members as heroes and black people as brutal savages. So, yeah. And this all led to a head. The Red Summer of 1919, a series of at least 25 racially motivated riots, events, and attacks on black Americans that covered almost every region of the United States. The incidences covered from Maine down to Florida and all the way west to California. There are a couple of events in particular that stand out from the rest that I want to talk about today. It was late July 1919, Washington, D.C., a white woman named Bessie Gleason reported that as she was walking home near Tacoma Park, a black man leapt out of the bushes, beat her, and choked her until she lost consciousness. Another white woman reported a similar incident, but apparently she saw a black man and ran away screaming. Over the next few weeks, more white women reported being attacked by the same person. Although their stories never really lined up or made much sense, Nonetheless, the city police was mobilized and hundreds of black men were rounded up for questioning. Many of them were dragged from their homes without a warning or a warrant. At the same time, the local newspapers, eager for their next big spin, were fanning the flames of racial tension, sowing seeds of discontent for blacks amongst whites. It got to be so bad that the NAACP had to step in and ask the newspapers in the city to tone it down or they were going to be the reason something bad would happen they weren't lying. It was the middle of July and already there had been race riots and race-related violence that had already taken place in Charleston, South Carolina, Longview, Texas, New London, Connecticut, and over a dozen more would come in the fall with at least 43 black people lynched by mid-September. White mobs in the city began to form during the night, looking to adjudicate vigilante justice. They were apparently looking for the culprit who had been allegedly assaulting white women across the city, but there were really no real leads. So they were indiscriminately finding black people all across the city, ganging up on them and beating them, surrounding their houses and taunting them. Then the next day came an article written in the Washington Post. Think about that, the Washington Post, calling for the mobilization that night. 
Every available white serviceman had been requested to meet on Pennsylvania Avenue between 7th and 8th Street at 9 o'clock with the purpose to clean up. I wonder what that meant. But the black residents of D.C. were ready to fight back. They armed themselves and prepared to fight. That night, skirmishes broke out across the city as whites and blacks attacked each other alike. The police ordered the black veterans who were in their army uniforms to disperse and stand down. They did not. There are varying reports from that night, the likes of a chaotic action movie. A black veteran shot into a crowd, chased a man down and killed him. A white conductor stopped his streetcar and shot at a black passenger. A 17-year-old black girl shot a police officer dead after he entered her family's home without a warrant. A vigilante in the Home Defense League shot and killed the son of a beloved black messenger for the house speaker. He had come back from the war only 10 days earlier. The only thing that softened the fighting was a heavy summer rain, and President Woodrow Wilson, the segregationist, deployed troops into the city to stop the madness. It took him long enough, three days to be exact. A reported nine people died in this rioting, and another 30 died from their wounds shortly after. The Washington race riots of 1919 lasted from July 19th through the 22nd, and I bet you've never heard of it. But the reckoning and aftermath of this riot couldn't be paid attention to for too long because eyes quickly turned towards Chicago. The Chicago race riot began with the murder of Eugene Williams. It was a hot summer day in July on the shores of Lake Michigan. Hundreds of Chicagoans sought relief from the brutal heat by going to the shores of Lake Michigan for a beach day. 17-year-old Eugene Williams, an African-American boy, and his friends were playing on a raft out in the water. His raft accidentally drifted past an invisible but acknowledged line in the water that divided the whites from the blacks. He drifted over to the white beach territory. A 24-year-old white man named George Stauber saw Eugene drifting over into the white territory and began to hurl rocks at Eugene, causing him to fall off his raft where he drowned. He basically stoned him to death. A police officer was called to the scene, told what happened, and refused to arrest George for the murder of Eugene. Word spread like wildfire, and hundreds more people, white and black alike, rushed to the beach to discuss what happened, and the racial tensions boiled all the way over, leading to the Chicago race riot of 1919, which lasted from July 27th to August 3rd, 1919. Racial riots had been brewing in Chicago for some time at this point. 44,000 black folk had lived in Chicago in 1910, and that number ballooned to almost 110,000 in 1920. All in all, 25 black people were killed, 13 white people were killed, 500 people were injured, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages were inflicted. These were just two out of the dozens of racially motivated riots that took place in the summer to fall of 1919. The term Red Summer was coined by civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson. It's often referred to as the Red Summer because the blood was flowing everywhere, north, south, east, and west. Black men bravely traveled across continents to fight for a country who didn't love them when they left and didn't love them when they returned. The Red Summer was so far-stretching with so many different events that intertwined to make this large scale of broader events. I believe that the Red Summer set the tone for what was to come for black people in the 20th century. 
White people thought that black people would just sit back and take the disrespect and fall back into their place. But they didn't. They fought back in blood. They weren't intimidated and didn't step down because in all honesty, they had nothing to lose. Black people in this country had already been to hell. They didn't mind going back if it meant saying enough is enough. This won't be the last time we talk about the Red Summer because there's quite a bit more to talk about. Until next time. Yo, if you like this episode, consider going down and leaving us a rating and a review. We're about halfway to a thousand ratings on Apple Podcasts and almost halfway to a thousand ratings on Spotify. That's awesome. I appreciate all the feedback and support that you guys give this show. The Instagram is up and the YouTube is up. The trailer on the YouTube actually just dropped. All of that is linked below in the show notes. So, Once again, I'm blown away by the support that you all show this show. Let's keep it going. I love y'all. Until next time.